and welcome to our class podcast for American Writers 2, 1865 to the present. I'm Dr. Carrie Tippin, your instructor and host. This week, we're looking at the writers of the lost generation. And today we're discussing Ernest Hemingway's short story, Big Two-Hearted River, and F. Scott Fitzgerald's short story, Ice Palace. Let's meet the rest of the panel. Uh, we have our, our finisher with their fourth podcast appearance. Haley, why don't you introduce yourself first, tell us your name, your major, and choose cake or pie. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Haley. I'm an English major, and I'm going to pick pie. I just got into pie making, and it's such a joy. I got all the equipment in my house. I make pies all the time. Makes me so happy, so I'm choosing that side. You have a favorite pie. Oh, strawberry pie. Strawberry, strawberry pie. pie. Any day of the week. I love it. It's so good. I like that. Okay, great. Uh, Rachel, say hello. Hi, my name's Rachel. I'm a biology major. And this is hard. I can't make pie. So I guess I'll have to go with pie because I can't make it. So whenever I get it, it's like bought and it's like really good. Uh, unless the yeah. crust is bad. But if I had to like pick if cheesecake counts as a cake, then I would pick that because <laughs> I love cheesecake. Hard. I think cheesecake is a pie, though, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Cheesecake is a pie. Uh, good. That was a very diplomatic answer, Rachel. I think you really worked through the nuances of it. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, Finley. <laughs> yes. Uh, my name is Finley. I'm a creative writing major. And I was originally going to say cake um, yeah. because when I think about pie, I think about like apple pie and I personally hate apple pie. It's the texture, I don't like it. Um, but then I thought about it more and like coconut cream pie is a thing. And that is, that I can't not say pie. So, um, and pie is just, it seems so distinguished. Like if I eat cake, I'm like, oh, it's a birthday party. You know, I feel like I'm a, I'm a child, but if I eat a pie, I'm an adult, I'm distinguished. Interesting. It makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> That is an interesting take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm also team pie. I think the, the I like a fruit uh, dessert more than I like a chocolate or a vanilla dessert. And so I feel like pie gives me more fruit options. And I've just had a lot of terrible cake in my life. Just really bad cake, but not so much bad pie, right? Okay, great. I'm glad that we're team pie. Welcome, welcome. Okay, <laughs> well, let's get into it. Um, let's do Big Two-Hearted River first. Uh, even though it is, I think, both older or both newer and later in the thing. But you all had lots of questions about it. And I think let's give it our most of our time. I think that's the, the choice I'm making. Uh, so my first question for you about the big two-hearted river is in the context of modernism, does it seem to be experimental in any way? How might it be doing those experimental things that we think about modernism doing? Any ideas? Do we want a summary first? Oh yeah, crap. <laughs> I've never done this before. Um, <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I think it kind of does go hand in hand with that experimental okay, in my, in my mind. Um, it's a very descriptive story. It relies heavily on um, explaining what Nick Adams, the main character does, just explaining what he does and like how he feels about things. Um, so basically he goes back to his old stomping grounds um, his old fishing grounds, actually, and um, after um, after the war and the you know the town has burned down and the bugs are all ashy and 
you can tell that there's been like disaster, but he's trying to make the best of it. He, there's a lot of like flashback moments of his, of his um, friends, especially Hopkins yeah. is one of the, the buddies, Hopkins and Bill, I believe. Um, and um, like, those are his two buddies, the only two people he wants to go fishing with. And he, um, the war is over. So like, I'm going to come back and have a happy memory. Um, and it's not, it doesn't really go fantastic for him. He has some struggles when he's fishing, but yeah. um that's pretty much it. He's just fishing in his old stomping grounds. But I think it's experimental in that way. Like there's not really a plot. It's just kind of like him reliving things and reliving what? Just the scenery, I guess. But um Yeah. Yeah, it seems kind of experimental in the way of like it's not really anything there. It's he's just kind of sitting there. It's a description of him sitting there doing stuff. So yeah, I wonder if Haley and Rachel, you have anything else to say about that kind of experimental nature of the the narration? Anything about it that stood out to you as strange? I personally was kind of confused during all of it. Like I understood what was going on, but the whole time I was like, okay, does this like have a deeper meaning? I get what's going on, yeah. but why, why are we hearing about his camping trip, you know? Yeah, so maybe the experiment is that that objective distance of the narrator who's telling us what the narrator can see, but is not always telling us what the character can, can think. It doesn't interpret things for us. This narrator does no interpretive work, right? Uh, and the, the verbs are kind of easy, like he liked it. He liked to open cans. Um, I don't know what it means to like to open cans, but that's all we get. And we have to, as readers, do a lot of work to kind of do this interpretive move. Haley, what do you think about it being kind of experimental maybe? Um, I think it's really interesting because he weaves in personal information in a very interesting way. He'll talk about other people and that's how we learn different things about our main character right. like, he'll reminisce on others and then you're like oh so that gives us background of where he came from and why he would want to come on this trip yeah. but it's really backwards and it makes the it makes the reader have to do a lot of work and in the time of um for real realism yeah they were like um they were like no we're gonna tell you exactly what you need to know and Hemingway's like no I'm gonna make you work for it you're gonna have to figure it out yourself why he would want to go on this fishing trip which is really interesting, very modern. Yes, I was thinking while I was reading today about a comparison to like Sarah Orne Jewett and the White Heron, which is also a story kind of about a character walking in the woods and not a ton happens, but like the narrator speaks directly to us, speaks directly to the character, tells her what it is and what we're doing and why this matters and kind of explains it all. Um, not a lot, no explication. Finley, I'm really interested in your summary, how you said he's come home from the war. And I wonder if you could point to where you got that idea that he's returned um, from the war. So I, home is a weird, a weird way of, of, of putting it. I know, okay. um, I'm, I'm, I meant that he just came back, but like yeah. came back to like the old stomping grounds after the war, but it was the sense of like the, like, especially like the train at the very, very beginning. Like, it just feels like he just got off this train. Like he's finally back. Yeah. And it feels like even if this place right here, isn't his home, it's his home in like a metaphorical sense of like, yeah. this is yeah. where he feels himself 
And this is where he feels a connection to his past. So in a way it is his home, but mm-hmm. um, that's what I'm, I mostly meant of like, this is his like metaphorical home is this one place with all these memories that he has. Yeah. My question was more about the war part. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not really clear that it is post-war, but it feels like post-war, right? Maybe, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, there's descriptions of like the... Um, like the black grasshopper that's yeah. like ashy and so like things have been burnt down things have been destroyed things have yeah. been and it's just kind of like what happens when a guy comes back to a place that's all been burnt down and he's really sad about his friends who went off and disappeared and didn't come back kind of sounds like the war so sure. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like it's another one of those like um hey, audience, here's a handful of clues. You get to figure it out kind of thing. Yeah. Haley, Rachel, you know how to read, figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Haley, did you interpret it the same way that this is a post-war kind of activity? Or did you? No, it definitely feels post-war to me. Um, it's also just like the mood in which he sets of yeah. this kind of, there was a desire to want to return to normalcy. And so everyone wanted to kind of go back to what felt comfortable. So for him, it's home to be in, you know, a canvas tent back in the woods where he's used to. So this return to normalcy does feel very post-war to me. Yeah. Rachel, what do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure if he was in the war, though. I didn't see that. I I kind of feel Mm -hmm. like he went somewhere when all of this was going on and then came back. Because like on 982, which my book's different. I'm sorry. Cool, cool, cool. (laughs) But um, it's like the second page. It says he realized that the fire must have come the year before, but the grasshoppers were all black now. So I kind of took that as, okay, he was somewhere, but I don't know where. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if it was he was in the war or not. Yeah, it does not say. It does not say very clearly that he was or not. I think it's really interesting that, that it's easy to assume because of the time that it's published, right? So 1925, the things we know about Hemingway, you have some questions about that, Haley and Rachel. So I definitely want to make sure we cover those. Uh, or I think it was Haley and Finley, doesn't matter. Anyway, we'll talk about that in a minute. But there's something about the, the pack that feels like a, an army pack or like a post-war pack. There's something about the like marching, tramping, that seems to be army, the, but his memories of making coffee are pre-war, that he, there are things that he did pre-war. So I'm interested in uh, Haley's idea about returning to normal because he sure is doing a lot of militaristic kind of things, right? Marching and camping and carrying a pack. <laughs> so uh, it's, it feels transitional, uh, this character. He feels like he's in a transition from what to what it's not quite clear. He's not quite where he used to be. He's not quite home. He's kind of somewhere in between. Um, I wanted to draw your attention to a thing uh, in the, the, it's not in the, the head note for this story, but in kind of the, an introductory chapter. Uh, this is a quote from Hemingway where he, where he says he wanted to write about the country so it'd be like a Cezanne had done it in a painting. Um, and I wonder what you know about Cezanne. I, oh, Hannah is on the call. Hannah is listening. Hannah is our art history person. But I'll let you all go first. <laughs> Cezanne, if I posted, if I showed you this picture, 
from Cezanne. I hope my my listeners can, or, or yeah, people who are listening will go to the PowerPoint and look at this picture. But Haley Rachel Finley, tell me what this picture, how does this picture remind you of the story? Does it? Does it have any connection? So this was a, a, a thing that I was like, hadn't explicitly taken notes on. And then when we were sitting here talking about it, I'm like scribbling down notes so I don't forget. <laughs> um, the another another I guess kind of tying it back to the war thing um another I guess it would connect it to everything of of why is it different and what makes you think it's about the war um I think it's about um and bear with me like dementia like losing (laughs) memory like that um because a lot of stories that were told about the war is that, oh, this person came back, PTSD, here's a trauma story of them reliving their trauma, or here is them dying violently in the war, or here's the reunion of of them and their wife or whatever. But we never hear stories about, hey, this person came back from the war and they died of old age. That's not something that you hear a lot. Um, So that's the way I interpreted this of like, he's Mm -hmm. just coming back to what he knows. Maybe that's not why he's not telling his own personal story. on to his friends while he was fighting in the war like how do you hold on to yourself and how do you um make sure that you want to stay alive as I want to stay alive for my friends so you remember your yeah. friends stories and not your own um and that's like these pictures are very much like it's colors and shape and form it's not details which definitely yes. speaks to dementia or memory loss in general um that nostalgia of that could be literally anywhere with a big mountain in the background. It could be anywhere. So it's kind of, it feels like if you asked somebody with dementia or Alzheimer's to describe their hometown, this is what you would get. And I think that that's really fitting for, he just came back to his old like stomping grounds and this is probably how he would describe it. So I think that's, at least that's the way that I, I like to picture that. Interesting. Yeah, Haley, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this image. Well, I will admit I did a super quick Google search just to confirm some of my own knowledge. Okay, good. So I'm not going to say I'm an art expert, but um, <clears throat> so Cezanne was French, which is obviously very Hemingway. Hemingway would have been all about it because yeah. he's big in France and he loves it there. Um, and then he was also, um, I thought it was Impressionist, but it's considered post-Impressionist. That was what my thing was so it's very like you can kind of see a little bit better than impressionism but not quite it's kind of like if you took your glasses off and you're like yeah that looks you know kind of like what I would imagine it being but that's interesting because it's very modern and again like you would imagine him wanting to describe like a classical landscape art like I want to you know describe um and you know when I in the reader's mind I want it to be like what you would imagine a landscape would be in a painting but this isn't quite that it's just a mixture of colors and it's like the rough idea of something, which is very much like his writing. It's like the rough idea of the adventure. You don't get yeah. every single little detail. Yeah, and so like big open spaces where it's just yellow and you have to decide what yellow is and what what is it representing. Rachel, any other thoughts there? Yeah, I was just thinking it's kind of, it kind of would be what I would picture, say you like would visit a place or like it's home and then you do go away and you're away for a while. You don't remember every single detail, but you just remember the overview of it. So maybe that could tie into like how he's going back and everything's kind of changed, but he remembers some things. 
I like that. I think that's all really good. Yeah. So there's a beautiful part of a movable feast where Hemingway writes about how he would like, he liked to get really hungry and like don't eat and then go to the museum or whatever the gallery and look at Cezanne paintings and then just like feel and then want to write that hunger and that empty space. So there are definitely more empty spaces than these. This might be one of the more, uh, the one that I'm just showing now, um, a more famous Cezanne painting or whatever. But again, lots of brush strokes uh, that become representative of a tree, right? But if you, again, if you take your glasses off, you can kind of see the whole tree. But if you really look at it, it's just strokes, right? And I think that might, I think there's something stylistically happening there of that mixture of art as a genre and writing as a genre. But I definitely want to spend lots of time talking about your questions. Uh, so Haley, you started with this relationship between Nick and Hemingway. So tell me a little bit about where this question comes from and, and what you're thinking of. So um, Usually the comparison is more for Nick and um, Hemingway's more war books, but I still wanted to bring it up because Nick is a reoccurring character throughout many of Hemingway's stories. So many theorists argue that Nick is actually just Hemingway within the stories, like a fictionalized version of himself. So I wanted to hear like other people's opinions or what we think if, you know, Nick really is representing Hemingway. Yeah, what kind of evidence do we have that this is autobiographical? Um, we have a little bit of that. Um, obviously, he's been to the war. Hemingway's kind of been to the war. But we kind of said, but he's not a very, like, soldier fully guy. Like, was he fully there? Was he not fully there? Like, you know, we kind of said it's a little confusing because Hemingway's journey with the war was a little confusing. He couldn't enlist. He became an ambulance driver a few weeks out, shrapnel, and he ended up having to leave. So he kind of has a, you know, he's a connection to the war, but it's kind of rocky, similar to what Nick's story seems to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Rachel, I wonder if you have any insight here. Yeah, I was thinking, okay, this is gonna sound so weird, but I don't know if you ever like kind of like in your body, like go out of your body and picture what it looks like uh -huh. whenever you're like doing things. But I kind of think that could be possible here. Maybe he kind of was writing from the perspective of he's, you know, out of his out of his body and instead it's like Nick and he's kind of saying like what all he saw but not through the context of Nick which sounds weird that I do that but like you no, know it's a kind of memory and I can't remember what it's called there's episodic memory and there's some other kind of memory and I think episodic memory is the kind where when you remember your past you remember your body enacting in the world rather than I remember what I saw from my goggles um yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and Finley, we're going to talk about memory and your question in a minute too, but do you have any thoughts here about this relationship between the character and the author? Um, I mean, I like it as a writer. I'm like, yeah, okay. I can I definitely see why somebody would do that. I get that. Um, having a reoccurring self-insert character is definitely something that like, that's, that's understandable. Yeah. Um, I think it's, um, for this story in particular, um, kind of shown that um, we're not given a backstory for Nick, really. Yeah. Um, that's kind of, I, it could be Hemingway's idea of, you guys know about me. You know who I am. Roll with it. Like, you know who I am. You know who Nick is by now. Like, let's just, let's get this show on the road. Like, I don't have to describe him. I just have to describe my friends or the friends that I wish I had during the war and things like that. 
I think that's an interesting interpretation too. I think as a writerly device, having again a self drop in character is is uh, not uncommon um, and kind of handy. They're from the same area of the United States. Um, Hemingway is well known as like a, a an outdoorsy kind of dude who does a lot of fishing and hunting and these kinds of things, both in what like in his biography, but also in his writing. So I think there's there's definitely some evidence there. Let's skip forward. Him, Philly, I'm going to come back to your question in a second. But you've you've led us to a question that both Haley and Rachel had, which is kind of the the sketchiness of Nick, that we don't have a lot of backstory and we don't have a lot of details about him uh, specifically. So Haley, I'm gonna let you take this one first. What do you think, why not? Well, I think it's part of the um, style, of course, like how we were just talking about modern, the fact that we don't know anything about the character, but yet we also know so many intimate details about the character. We know how he's eating and what he's eating and every you know thought he has, but yet we don't know anything about his background. So I think that is very modern. Um, and I think it also suggests that um, maybe he doesn't want to think about himself in a weird way, which is a very interesting perspective for him to write about. Haley, I think that's like boom, bing, 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 on the nose, exactly right. He does not want to think about himself. Did you notice pretty early on, he describes like it, he's happy to be there because he can kind of leave things behind. He's going to leave behind reading. He's going to leave behind writing. Um, he's going to leave behind need. The word need, I wish I could find exactly where he says it. Um, but he he wants to get away. There's something that he's getting away from. And there are things that happen on the river that seem to be too close to the thing he's trying to get away from, right? When he gets to the swamp, he has this really strange reaction of like, no, not the swamp, not the swamp. Can't go in the swamp. Don't let, I know I'm done with the swamp. To swamp tomorrow. I, I'm not swamping today. Uh, and that seems there's something happening and I don't know exactly what it is. And we can definitely ask that question later. Uh, but Haley, I like that theory that he's maybe his, we're getting his stream of consciousness thoughts and his thoughts do not want to be about himself. And that's why we don't know more. Rachel, what do you think? You also had this question about him being kind of mysterious. Yeah, so, um, well, you guys know, I'm like, this is like one of my first like English classes here. Yeah. So I never knew this about Hemingway. So I'm kind of looking at it at a really like different approach. And it's, really, it. it's really cool. <laughs> so now that I'm thinking about it, I, I definitely think it does have further meaning because it, it like represents him and who wants to think of all of your characteristics and talk about yourself rather than just talking about the experiences that you've gone through and kind of like journaling a little bit, but you don't want to talk about, you know, everything else. So it's cool now. I like it better than I did last night reading it. <laughs> I love that. I that was once a student wrote that on my evaluations that um, even if I came into class hating the thing that I read, I left feeling like, okay. And I thought that was the highest praise I've ever received. So Rachel, thank you. <laughs> That's great. Um, I was thinking of something before I started talking about myself. Oh, which is if it is in fact from that stream of consciousness, you can say he liked opening cans and you don't have to explain it to yourself because you know what that means. Or um, uh, about la what he's laughing about and why he's laughing. He doesn't need to explain to himself why uh, Eat, uh, drinking the coffee makes him laugh. 
um, right? These are things he does not have to describe to himself or what the swamp means to him. Um, so he doesn't need to do that. So it's maybe part of the form again. Finley, do you have more thoughts on this? Cause you, uh, you led us there. Yeah, um, I'm just, I like sat back and just like listening to you guys talk about it. Um, it almost feels like a non-human perspective. Oh. Like it could be the perspective of a bird watching him, like not a person, because a person would say, well, why does he do that? Why does he think like that? Why does he, why is he laughing at that cup of coffee? Why is he saying no swamp today? Why is he doing that? But an animal would just observe him. It's a, it's a, an unbiased observation from the outside. Um, I think it's a little bit too descriptive to be a journal entry because he wouldn't be like, I laughed over my cup of coffee or I said no swamp today. Like that doesn't, that's not really like, you know what I mean? And so yeah. I feel like it's almost like something or someone without bias is just watching him live and is like, why is he doing that? I guess I'll just jot down. He laughs at his coffee. He said no swamp don't know what that means so it's like maybe ask about swamp question mark like it doesn't it doesn't really have it would be more explanation mm -hmm. if it had been a fully fleshed out character but I feel like this is the way that he feels like Hemingway feels that he's perceived maybe I like it I'm in I'm into two two things about that one is when he looks at the trout it begins with him looking at trout and really like getting into that observation of the fish and what the fish is doing and why the fish is doing what he's doing. And then there's a bird and a fish and he's kind of looking at them pass over each other. Um, I think he is observing animals. I think it's really interesting to think about the narrator as observing the animal that is Nick. Um, and I wonder if there's, again, that post-war connection, like a post-war thinking about humans as animals rather than humans as people put a pin in that the second thing that I thought of was journalism right it's kind of journalistic in a way that uh, observer who's looking at the action from a journalistic point of view and reporting and we know that that's part of Hemingway's background too as a journalist and reporter uh, especially on things like bullfighting um, and other kind of international sport question mark uh yeah okay cool let's go to uh finley's question about why this story why is it a story about fishing finley <laughs> um so i kind of had like a big thing i put the, all the all three of the, the my questions together um yeah. just because they kind of in the way that i was processing it kind of fit together yes. um why this story but also like why memory and yeah. like what does the memory have to do with it um I wrote the word compulsive because um, that definitely set something with me um, that he was doing these things. Nick is doing these things and maybe doesn't know why. Um, he says no swamp, but maybe he doesn't know why. Um, the line breaks when he's fishing and he gets upset about that. And then he like tries again, but he doesn't take a rest until he catches a fish. He doesn't take a break and smoke until he has caught a fish, which feels very much like he's reliving something. Yeah. And he maybe he maybe he doesn't know what he's reliving, um, and maybe that's why the the black grasshopper sticks out to him because he's like, this isn't a part of my memory. This isn't supposed to be here. This isn't it. Um, and there's the part where when he's waking up in his in his tent 
and he says, um, he gets excited about the warmth of the sun. And then he says, no, 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 wait, I have to do this before I go fishing. So it, it seems very, very compulsive. It feels like, um, so like why this story? It feels like you need to tell this story through the perspective of this version of Nick. You can't tell that from when it originally happened with Hopkins and Bill. You can't tell that story. You have to tell it from, you have to live it out like Nick is living it out right now, which is, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I have to. I just yeah. have to do it. Yeah. Let's do look at that moment, the one that you're talking about where he breaks the line. Uh, it's on my 995. Uh, so I'll read a little bit and we'll kind of talk about it. So he he feels he, the word tightening gets used a lot. Um, he sees the fish tighten and then he feels his heart tighten. Let's talk about that later. But now he's on 995. There was a tug, uh, Nick struck and the rod came alive and dangerous, bent double, the line tightening, coming out of the water, tightening, all in a heavy, dangerous, steady pull. Nick felt the moment when the leader would break if the strain increased and let the line go. Blah, blah, blah. Keep going. The line tightened again. Tightened, tightened, tightened. Okay, now <laughs> it went slack. His mouth dry, his heart down. Nick reeled in. He had never seen so big a trout. There was a heaviness, a power not to be held. And then the bulk of him as he jumped, he looked as broad as a salmon. Nick's hand was shaky. He reeled in slowly. The thrill had been too much. He felt vaguely a little sick as though it would be better to sit down. What has happened? A fish broke his line and he's having a pretty major reaction to that. Tell me what you think is happening. Finley, I'll let you go first. Um. I think it's um, a mix of my heart's too old for this. Um, I've been oh. through too much. I've been through too much. This excitement is too much. And it's kind of a breaking point in his life, not yeah. just a breaking point, um, like a breaking of the line, but it's a breaking in um, in his story. So yeah. he's like, um, I gotta catch fish now. Like, this is part of my story. I have to catch fish. And he goes to catch a fish and it doesn't work. And he's like, this isn't supposed to happen. It breaks his storyline. It breaks his memory up. And he gets upset about it. Um, it seems like he's having a panic attack, if we're going to be honest. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if that's an old man panic attack. Like, this is too old on my heart. Or if it's like, this isn't right. And I don't know why it's not right. Sort of a obsessive compulsive response of this isn't right. Why is it, Why can't I? He's like, I just need to sit down. But like this isn't right like why isn't it right why didn't it happen kind of thing i am truly fascinated by this uh, interpretation finley that that nick might be old because it doesn't tell us that nick is not old right yeah i don't think he's like old old i think he's okay, like, like 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 like, like 60s or 70s but like yeah. like between his 50s and his 70s like an old veteran kind of guy i'm just gonna go fishing because this is where my friends used to be i definitely don't think he's in his 20s like i'm gonna be honest but you could read um, either way right so if he just came home from war so it's 1920 and he's come home from a 1918, 1919 kind of end of war deployment. That's one story. But if he's older, then maybe there is no war. It's just something, some other thing. I don't know that we have enough evidence to pick between those two interpretations. 
do you? Because he does not say, I just got home from war and I'm feeling this way. And yeah, and that's that's why I like the um, the idea of like the role of memory and the yeah. path because um, like he mentions like the, um, like everything being like burned and changed like last year, right. but that could be, you know, young man comes home and he's like, this just got burned down last year. I guess I just came back. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what happened. Or it could be an old guy that's like, oh, I just got back from the war last year. Yeah. I, nothing's happened since then. I've just, I just got back from the war. And so I'm coming back home and it could be like this, this all happened many, many years ago, but he's just, mm. he keeps revisiting this one memory. And maybe this isn't the first time he's gone fishing here. And maybe this is just the first time it hasn't gone right. And that's why we're telling this story. Yeah, I would love to hear Haley's thoughts on this, on the, uh, the kind of what's happening at this particular moment when he breaks the fish, or maybe this theory that we're playing with now. What do you think? Gosh, um, <laughs> this kind of, come back to me. Rachel, do you have a I thought? I have a lot of ideas. This yeah. panic attack moment maybe? Yeah, I don't, now I'm, I don't know. Cause yeah. I could still see where it could be kind of, he's coming back from the war, you know, life's been stressful over there. He just wants life to be normal. And I feel like when you're, you're upset, like the littlest things like yeah. make you not just, you know, like just freak out. So maybe he just wants everything to go right for this. And then he, the smallest thing would just not catching the trout and it breaking his line. Yeah, that reads to me with the like the PTSD and a recent returnee. That sounds like a thing that he would do is that he would be in the space between war and not war. And that the word danger, it's dangerous, dangerous, tightening, tightening. Uh, those both feel like a return to a place that I just, I once was and I don't want to go back to. Oh, we're so, we're doing so great, but we're, do, we're getting busy. <laughs> Let's make sure that we get some time for ice ballads. You all got one question answered, so I'm happy with it. <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories, uh, and I think about it all the time in Pittsburgh as like a displaced Southerner. Uh, I think often about um, about poor Sally Carroll, like laying down in the middle of the ice palace and just passing out out of terror. Um, that feels real to me. <laughs> feels like a real experience. And I do love uh, at the very end where she says like, what are you doing, Sally Carroll? Oh, eating a peach and I expect to die in a minute now. That's kind of like, that's my jam. I love it. <laughs> so uh, I want to skip forward to your questions. Uh, so Haley, you wanted to start by talking about Sally Carroll and death. Um, what prompted this question for you? Why is she thinking about death? Well, I mean, it's so clear throughout the story and her relationship with death is extremely interesting because the first thing that we get is kind of, well, the first big thing. She talks about death probably. It, Haley. Sorry. Rachel, will you summarize oh. first and then Haley answer your question? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I also, I also loved this story. Oh, good. So, yeah, it was, it was so cute, but, um, but also sad. But anyway, so it started off with Sally just sitting in the window, like looking outside and it was very, leisurely and calm and she sees Clark driving by yeah. and then they go swimming and then it's just peaceful and calm like she's on a little vacation but she's at home and then 
there's rumors going around that she is engaged to a man from the north yeah and she's like no no this isn't true this isn't true but but it is so they agree to get married in I believe March so she moves up there to live with him and in the beginning everything's great she's so excited but then as time goes on she misses home a lot and even has to like defend people from home like against Harry who is saying bad things and then towards the end of the story she gets lost in an ice palace which I took as kind of her own internal struggle feeling like she was lost in the north didn't feel Mm -hmm. welcome there and just wanted to go home and then it ends with her I, I believe she breaks off her engagement because she at the end of the story she's back home and it goes back to her sitting at the window and then Clark driving by with his car again. Yeah, we begin and end in exactly the same place. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but there's all the stuff in the middle. Good, you did great, thank you. Haley, okay, what were you gonna say (laughs) about death? (laughs) So we're we're talking about death. So death (laughs) plays an important part of the story because it kind of carries through no matter where we are located. Um, But in the South, Sally Carroll is very comfortable with death. Yeah. That does not bother her. The idea of her own death doesn't seem to bother her in the South. But in the North, like death is scary and the death are coming back and the death are, you know, it, there's a lot of moments of where you can see her fear of death there that is kind of correlated also with the cold. Yeah. So, I feel that too. <laughs> the cold equals death for me. Yeah, let's specifically talk about the Confederate dead. So one of the reasons or one of the ways that she and Harry kind of hang out uh, is that they meet in North Carolina, right, in this uh, gra- a graveyard. And it's a fun place for her to hang out. She loves hanging out in this North Carolina graveyard. Uh, and then they go to the area where there's the Confederate dead and the saddest one with the word unknown. So we're talking about Confederate monuments in this story. And they're, I think, newish, right? <laughs> they're no, it's not like a, uh, it's been there since the 1860s one. It's kind of a, um, you know, a, a newish sort of monument. Uh, the dead South, she says on 927, no, it's not just me that's beautiful. Uh, it's, it's then that old time that I've tried to have live in me. These were just men, unimportant evidently, or they wouldn't have been unknown, but they died for the most beautiful thing in the world, the dead South, you see. Uh, okay, great. <laughs> so uh, Haley and Rachel, you both asked questions about this North versus South thing. Uh, so, so Rachel, maybe I'll let you ask that question and then we'll connect it to, to death. What, what made you think about this North-South question? Yeah, so in the beginning, I do see her compare a lot, um, for the South and death. Yeah. And then as the story goes on and she's living in the North, it's kind of takes a turn. Whereas the South is kind of described as almost like a vacation type of place. Everything's kind of leisure. People are lazy, she says. It's calm. So I kind of see her flip-flop, which I don't, I don't know what, why, why she, I guess like she just misses home, but you know, yeah, I kind of see that. that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Finley, I'll let you weigh in on this one too, and then I'll let Haley connect it back to death. Y'all are just going off like this is absolutely (laughs) like um this one was definitely a harder one for me to like 
grasp and connect to so you guys are talking and I'm like yeah that that makes sense no yeah that makes sense no yes that that right there so um I like I'm wondering the dead south do we think dead as in like you all died and and like we're gonna commemorate death or is it dead as in like there's nothing here we're all we're all just chilling there's no work here it's the dead south so I don't know if dead is used as a good thing or a bad thing in that in in this story I guess (laughs) that's a great question uh Haley I'll let you kind of take it on what do you think so with the north and south and death it's interesting because I don't know I had so many opinions on this because (laughs) I was just like like she seems to be terrified of death but like not at the same time like she's like the southerners just look at death differently but I don't think that it's true that they actually do I just think that that's her Mm -hmm. I think it's like her own views of like she likes when things feel like warm and lively and for some reason in the graveyard that's what it feels very to her like there's like she's very comfortable with like them keeping a name and keeping who they are it makes her uncomfortable to just be like cold dead and gone so yeah it's dead and still alive it's both right that phrase she says I have tried to have it live in me the old time uh and she imagines herself as like a uh, the wife of one of these soldiers, right? Uh, she used to hear their stories. She grew up with them. Uh, she says, I'm not depressed when I feel here. I'm happy. I cry. Even when I cry, I'm happy. I get a sort of strength from being there. So it's it's maybe not about the, the South actually being dead, but more about it being like something, it's an activity to bring it back to life that she enjoys doing. And I think it's a problem, we could read from a problematic kind of keeping the South alive, right? Some of the things that she wants to keep alive are uh, things that a lot of other people would like to see dead and gone forever, right? Um, So that's kind of strange. (laughs) Uh, Talk to me about some of the things that she encounters in the North that she has to defend. Rachel, you brought up the idea that she has to defend the South. Uh, on her trip. Do you remember any of those moments that stand out to you or that are interesting? Yeah, I know that um, Harry calls all of the men in the South basically like they're uneducated and things like that. I'm trying to find the section where he talks more about it. Uh-huh. And, but I know he says like they're they're lazy, like nothing's going well for them. They're kind of stupid, you know. Yeah, just kind of looks at them in a belittling type of way. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, I'm looking specifically at this moment where she walks into their uh, library and she sees immediately the the major differences that in her family's library, uh, there's an old couch that had been mended up for 45 years. It was luxurious. Uh, Everything about it was kind of old, but this one struck her as being neither attractive nor particularly otherwise, uh, but a room with fairly expensive things that all looked about 15 years old. So this newness of the North uh, offends her sensibilities a little bit. Um, So even though her things are kind of broken down or maybe not so rich or expensive, they have history and that makes them more valuable to her, maybe. 
Uh, Haley, you want to weigh in on these sort of defending the South moments? Um, yeah, not problematic, not good. Didn't, yeah. didn't feel good to read, but there was, you know, listening to her, you know, yeah, she had a lot. There was a there was a very interesting thing that was happening because we both had a character that was condemning the South. And then we also had a character that was like, the South needs to, you know, live again and we need to bring back all the old times. Yeah. So we had Harry saying just as much bad stuff as she was saying good stuff throughout it. Yeah, and where does the author fit in, right? Where does the narrator fit in? Do we, how do we take away a message when we have those two dueling opinions? Maybe that's the experiment of it, right? Maybe that's the modernist side is that it does not resolve for us. Sally Carroll changes not a bit between the beginning and the end. And Harry really doesn't either. He kind of goes back to doing what he was doing and the North and South remain North and South, I guess. We have just a few minutes. Let's wrap up with the idea of the ice castle. <laughs> Rachel uh, and Haley, again, both asked kind of like, why an ice castle? Haley, you said it's both beautiful and the thing that drives her away. And uh, Rachel, you were kind of thinking about it being uh, maybe a symbol. So um, Haley, why don't you go first? Tell us what you're thinking about. Um, well, I definitely agree it's a symbol. I think yeah. that um, the idea that this ice castle is, because she says she wants, she's like, I can't marry a boy in the South. I have to go to the North. I have to live that life. Because to her, that's a life of adventure and something she, you know, she's longing for that. And, you know, I think the ice castle kind of represents that, like, it's this beautiful, it's this thing she doesn't know, but at the end of the day, like, it's very confining and cold to her. So, yeah, there's a lot to it, I think. It's, okay, yeah, so this future that she's imagining, very attractive, but when she actually experiences it or gets a taste of it, she's like, oh, no, that's not what I thought it was. Right. Yeah, Rachel, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with Haley. She kind of she kind of said what I was gonna say, but you know, you could even see as she she enters into it. You know, it's all beautiful and everything, and then as she keeps going, then she gets lost. So yeah. kind of how when she went to the north at first, everything was beautiful, but then as she kept going with her time there, she felt so lost and not welcomed. There's a note where she says, um, "Where you are is home for me, Harry." And as she said this, she had the feeling for almost the first time in her life that she was acting a part. So even long before the ice castle, she's already kind of seeing, oh, I don't know if this is gonna work out for me. I don't think this is what I really wanted. And I have to pretend to like it in some ways. Uh, yeah, Finley, why don't you take a turn? What do you think? Oh, I'm sorry. I just sent a. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have two cats, and they're both like, "Hey, why don't we just scratch, 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 and then just violently throw up everywhere?" Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> just like having to deal with that. Um, no, I love, I love the um, ice castle more as a metaphor than as a physical thing. As just she's trying to cope with things, and it's just like, what is the most menacing thing I could possibly picture? in my brain <laughs> that also should probably be comforting to me in some way it is it is a sanctuary it is a castle it is big it is grand it is beautiful but it's it's terrifying to her so i think it's it's her own way of of processing like like her internal struggle her internal struggle but i think it's like not only is it just like 
um, like the author's metaphor for her internal struggle, but I think it's how she is picturing it and like mm-hmm. in herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it could not be more different than the picture that we see of the South of like swimming holes and sunshine and apples and peaches and like all of those like silly, you know, beautiful, slow moving accents. Uh, but an ice castle is a thing that could not exist where she comes from, right? It seems to be an eternal land of summer there in Georgia uh, and very different from this sort of New England winter. So I think it's a, a pretty apt metaphor, right? To make it a thing that looks attractive, seems again, really beautiful. It has that connection to wealth and we have not had time to talk about the class differences in the class struggle and the way money plays a role in this North-South relationship. So I think that's maybe a way to, another way forward, right? To think about that, that connotation of a castle versus a plantation versus, right? Some of these other things. Woo, okay, that was fun. We're out of time now. Uh, do you have any recommendations you want uh, people to read or watch or listen to? Um, Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby. Watch The Great Gatsby. Read The Great Gatsby. Great Gatsby. Mm. I reread it recently and then I rewatched the movie and loved it. Thought it was great. I like both movies. I like the Robert Redford movie. That's the one I grew up on, but I, I like the Leonardo DiCaprio one too. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, I also liked um, The Beautiful and the Damned is an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel that was very good too. Uh, I liked for Hemingway. I liked Old Man in the Sea. I'm not mad about it, but it's another fishing story. Um, and a river. The one run- that I was thinking about when I was reading right. Hemingway's story was Of Mice and Men. Oh yeah. <laughs> the only one I could think of was just like, um, you know, they like going back to the river and like memory issues and just, yeah. just a couple of guys. Yeah. That's the only thing I was thinking of the whole time. So yeah, go yeah. back and read that one because I reread that one and I read it in middle school and then reread it in high school. And it definitely hits different when you read it again. <laughs> they're similar time periods, right? So they're kind of writing around the same time. That makes sense. Okay, great. You've all done so well. Thank you so much for being a part of our panel today. And thank you for listening. <laughs>